NAB Show New York is where go-getters in media, entertainment, finance, and advertising connect and champion new content strategies. Discover new tools and solutions from 300-plus exhibitors and gain actionable insights from more than 50 conference sessions. Learn more at nabshowny.com and get your free core package. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name's Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. The Cone Brothers have occupied their fair share of Film Comment covers, from Raising Arizona to Inside Lewin Davis, and for good reason. It's hard to find other filmmakers who continue to impress so consistently, and their latest film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, is no different. For this week's podcast, we take a series of deep dives into the Cone Brothers' multi-layered, often dazzling work, and we pay particular attention not just to their film's intricate design, but also their depth of feeling. The moderator for this episode is Michael Koreski, who writes about The Ballad of Buster Scruggs in our new September-October issue. Let's listen to their conversation. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Michael Koreski. I'm the editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and I have some very special guests with me today to talk about the beloved, by some, Cohen Brothers. Can you please introduce yourselves? I am Adam Naiman from Toronto. I just recently wrote a book called The Cohen Brothers. This book really ties the films together, and I'm a contributing editor for Cinemascope. Uh, my name is Eliza Ma. I'm the head of programming at Metrograph, and that's it. Um, Cam Collins, I write for Vanity Fair. Well, thank you all for being here on this um, sort of late night. We won't say how late. The reason we're here today is because, well, there are two reasons. One is that Adam, as he just mentioned, has published this new book from Abrams about the Coen brothers. It's a big, beautiful, hardcover, coffee table-ish looking book that is much smarter than it has any right to be. <laughs> my, my point being that often you'll see these kinds of books and you won't necessarily buy them for the text, for the essays. You'll buy them for the beautiful pictures. This has beautiful pictures, but it also has some quite brilliant writing, of course, from Adam. And also the Cohen brothers have a new film coming out called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And this is in the New York Film Festival, so it's going to be premiering here in a couple of weeks. It premiered at Venice already. It's a film that only a couple of us have seen. Uh, I've seen it and I wrote a feature on it for the new film comment issue for the September ish, uh, September October issue, and Adam has finally seen it today, I believe. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We don't want to spoil anything about it because it's sort of a it's a film full of discoveries, I'd say, and we also don't want to spoil it just not just for the listeners, but for Lisa and Cam. So. Before we get into the Coens in general and this book that you've written, Adam, what are your first impressions on The Ballad of Buster Scruggs? Well, it's exciting to get to give these first impressions in, in this format of just sitting around and talking because I find it's always good to talk things out before writing. And I was reading the reception of the film at, at Venice even before I saw the film and somewhat muted, which was interesting to me that it's almost like the Coens made a movie and the Venice coverage didn't notice, um, which led me to wonder if maybe it's a bit of a muted film or if the film's a bit of a botch or if the film's a bit of a misfire, uh, which it's not. But I'm also thinking and anticipating what people are going to write about it because I think it's going to have a really divisive and polarizing reception. I agree. And I think some of that will have to do with a perceived lightness. 
I also think some of that, and perhaps this is a topic for another podcast, will have to do with issues in it of representation and the question of whether they are inside a Western fictional context. Things that um, have come up in discussions like Quentin Tarantino talking about the Westerns of John Ford and the, the questions of race and representation and racism, I think, will come up around the film and will color some of the way that it's talked about. But in terms of what's actually in it, I think it's extraordinary. And I think that anyone who dismisses it as, as light does so kind of at their own peril. I think it's quite heavy. I think it's quite mordant and I think it's quite sad and I think it's quite political. So, you know, these are all, these are all words I'm using in a positive context, but it definitely is a movie. And whether you want to talk about a movie being an anthology or a TV series being an anthology, these episodes all tie together. You should not watch them in isolation from each other. I'm so glad you're saying this. This is exactly what I've written and what I believe about this film. I think there has been a lot of misinformation spreading around the film. There was even an IMDb page that went up and treated each section as its own individual episode of a series that doesn't actually exist. Um, Again, having seen the film, the mere thought of watching that first episode, which is the episode titled The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, as its own isolated thing, I can't imagine what one would make of it and how you would even go on to the next one. You have to watch these in succession. And what happens is this very strange phenomenon where it gets increasingly dark darker, darker, until everything you're seeing is reflected back in the in the past episodes. And I would say what, ha what happens in episode three um, is so devastating. And it's such, and not just in the events of what happened on screen, again, we're kind of like talking vaguely because we're not trying to spoil it, but it's the episode with Liam Neeson. What happens in this episode says so much about dwindling American values and says so much about the way that the way people are treated as commodities and the way the entertainment business is um, functioning in its current state. It's very interesting that it's a Netflix film um, in that regard. And I also feel like when you call it political, without putting too much of a point on it, this feels about as political as they're ever going to get the Coen brothers, because this is definitely a Trump film. I can't really see it as anything else. Yeah, and again, I mean, it's all—it's hard to talk around it because, in some ways, it's an unspoilable film, because each episode has a fable-like structure in which the premise almost contains its shape and its resolution. Like, again, I'm going to try and do this without spoiling. Like, you have one episode in this, uh, the second episode, which features surprisingly well cast James Franco as a a bank robber given to misadventure, right? And that's really about it. I mean, there's no big twist. There's no big, big, there's no big spoiler. Like in a way, you can't spoil it. On the other hand, to even name what its themes are, is, is giving away because it keeps arriving at them from all these different angles. Um, it's it's interesting that six episodes of approximately twenty minutes each can all be palpably about the same thing, but feel different in how they address it and how they approach it. And in that way. It's very much microcosmic of the Coens because they are nothing if not masters of variations on a theme, you know. People who don't like the Coens accuse them of making the same film over and over, and people who love them, myself included, praise them for making the same films over and over. And it's the cert the changes in in texture or or syntax or or plot or, or or performance where the delight lies. I see this as a work of real conviction for them for some of the reasons that you said. I can't imagine 
people seeing this as impersonal, even though in some ways it dares you to because it is pastiche and archetype and cliche and illusion and has absolutely no responsibility to the present tense in terms of while you're watching it. And it's also stylistically so um, varied, but some of the modes they're working, like this is the most cartoony movie that they have made since Raising Arizona or since Hudsucker Proxy, like like cartoon panel style stuff in terms of the cutting and the coloring and some of the images that they have, including an image that calls back to the Hudsucker Proxy involving a harp. I mean, it's from the Hudsucker Proxy. So, you know... Um, it even has color plates. It has it has the device of a book color opening plates. and you see the color plates of this old, these kind of like old dime store westerns. Yeah. So again, I mean, it sounds a bit like we're talking around it, but I think I agree with you that it's a film of discoveries. I also think that it's a film that really flies in the face of some of the acclaim that they got for movies like Inside Lewin Davis, which is obviously soulful and has dramatic coherence and very controlled and very realistic. There's something daring about some of the modes that they're working in here, like the fable mode, the parable mode, and the cartoon mode. Like, they haven't done this in a while. And um, I can't wait to see what people make of it. I think it's going to be divisive as hell. I agree. I was thinking about a lot, a lot about a lot of their earlier films while watching it. I was thinking about the way violence is treated in films like Fargo and No Country for Old Men, where things that happen off screen and off camera can actually be far more disturbing than things that are treated in a more traditionally gory manner. This film has some gory violence, uh, but it's kind of it's kind of front loaded that way. And then the the sadder things happen as the as the episodes pile up. Um, and I was also thinking a lot of when with Lewin Davis, I was thinking of the line, the F. Murray Abraham line, which is like the killer line of the whole Cohen's career. I think I don't see a lot of money in this. There are there are things that happen in this film that are all about money and how everything is just kind of down to the basis possible level. Yeah, of, of that this kind of idea, this mercenary idea of kind of transaction and the commodification of people and value. And I mean, again, it's funny, I, I kind of misspoke earlier when I said each section is about one thing. I mean, I won't name what I think the one thing is, but bringing money into it, I think, means each section to some extent is about two things because money figures into each of those those six things. Maybe the last point I'll make, because again, I'm really averse to saying too much. When you say front-loaded, the fact that it's called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the fact that Buster Scruggs, as played by Tim Blake Nelson, dominates the first section the way he does and the way the first section plays out, it's one of the most recent times that I've kind of felt like a jaw on the floor viewership of the Coens because they don't surprise me. Like they do in wonderful ways, but like you watch their films, I think it's going to come up later in the podcast, what we all kind of expect from them. This is really a lot in that first episode of it to take the, the unreality of it, the direct address aspect of it. One little thing I'll say is here you have a character who seems inexplicably to combine aspects of the narrator from The Big Lebowski and Anchon Chigger from No Country from Old Men. Like they've always had both of those figures in their films, this kind of like omniscient narrator who's helping you into the world of the film and then this kind of like implacable killing machine that's coming for everybody. And we've seen variations on both of those characters throughout their work and here they are combined in one. And I sort of, from the moment I realized that, I thought they're playing by their rules, but they're playing by their rules in like a really, really piled on kind of way. That first segment is astonishing. And I, 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 I mean, putting it f- first is really daring because how can the rest of it live up to that? And astonishingly off-putting is the, astonishingly the last thing that I'll say. I, I, it, I, I've seen this film twice, but not with 
large audience. I've seen it on the big screen, thankfully, but not, uh, you know, they were sort of private. I actually would be nervous to see this with an audience just to, I'm, I think they might turn on the film early and that's kind of what the Coens are daring here or risking. Um, so again, uh, we should probably move on a little bit from this to, because if we go any further into it, we'll spoil it for everybody. Though maybe we'll have a follow-up podcast someday where we talk about each episode in depth, which I would really love. And I do recommend reading my article after seeing it because I think I probably do a lot of spoiling, though I try to, to kind of talk around. And it. I recommend reading Michael's article because it's excellent. I waited to read it until I had seen the film. Read Michael's excellent piece on the movie before you read some of the less excellent uh, commentary that is sure to follow. Well, and of course, read Adam's new book on the Coen brothers, because I also want to talk right now to Elise and Cam. Later on, we're going to go into individual Coen films that we've each kind of brought as an offering to talk about uh, films that we find particularly uh, strong or favorites or underappreciated, perhaps. But before that, I'd like to talk a little bit in general about the Coen brothers. And I'm just always kind of curious because they're such cornerstones of American movie going um, and and so, sort of, of a Hollywood type of film. Like, at what point did they become a force in 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 your in your lives, or were they? Uh, I mean, I mean, this is a, a boring sort of way into their career. But my first Cohen movie was Fargo, because I was you know I was a gay child who loved the Oscars, and so I had that one point. <laughs> <laughs> I had that you know that one period where you're going to watch every kind of you know best picture nominated movie or whatever, and. Uh, Fargo remains, I mean, it's funny, there, there are films that you kind of fall in love with when you're younger that don't hold up. Um, and Fargo is the opposite of that. It's, a, it's one of those movies that, like the best art for me, just gets better as I get smarter. Um, but I, you know, before I became a critic, it's funny that the movie that came out right before I started, I think, was Hail Caesar. And I remember, but I think at that point I'd been hired, but I remember thinking, sitting in the theater watching that, that I was so glad <laughs> to not have to review it. Um, because I think, you know, I guess my general take on the Coens is that I, they are some of the few mainstream American filmmakers whose films beguile me in a way that makes me feel unprepared to properly present them to a public in, a, in an intelligent, um, sympathetic, incisive way because they are so smart. And because they're working in so many modes in terms of cinematic, but also I think they're extremely literary. I think I think the more you know about, and this is true for a lot of filmmakers, obviously, but the more you know about a wide range of art, the more you get out of it. I just, I can't imagine, I mean, Hail, Hail Caesar, I can't imagine what it's like to watch that movie and not be in love with classic Hollywood. I mean, what are you watching if... I mean, what are you? <laughs> what is that film? I, I, I don't know. Um, the way that I discovered the Coen brothers was early on in teenagehood. Um, a friend of mine showed me a VHS of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I just remember being like, this movie is so boring. Why are you showing me this? <laughs> but later on, I went back to it. And, and then I actually realized that um, the title... It was a reference to Sullivan's Travels, in which the protagonist wants to make a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it's interesting, actually, in the context of Hail Caesar, which I think oh, I'll discuss a little bit later, but the Sullivan's Travels does come up because, you know, film history is so key to as an entrance point into understanding where they 
come from as filmmakers and and not only film history but also art history and american history and i think you know to your point about the the literary aspect of their work cam i mean um nobody really makes films about history in 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 such a deep um meaningful and cinematic way so i've only ever had the chance to see no country for old men and hail caesar in the movie theater I I adore them both very very much. Um I think I might be in the minority um talking to other people about Hail Caesar. A lot of people will probably lose respect for me after this podcast uh for my unabashed Never. love of the film. Um but uh yeah, I I do think that they're they're important in our everyday lives as you know just gatekeepers of american cinema this this almost tradition of quality but of course they're in in sort of um being purveyors of this tradition of quality they're also pushing the boundaries of genre cinema and um so yeah i'm also very much looking forward to slash curious about this upcoming film called the dark web the date of which is to be announced but Dennis Lehane has a co-writing credit with Joel and Ethan anyway i wonder if you could share some, shed some light on that adam it's just going to be a Barry Weiss biopic about the the intellectual dark web no i i i don't know much and it's strange cuz they're filmmakers that in the rear view i try and learn a lot about and have and in terms of what's upcoming i just keep wanting to be surprised and not track too much they also have a long history of films that don't come to pass so there there's that too i mean in terms of getting into them and you talked about gatekeepers which is a great word i remember reading roger ebert because i would go to the library in toronto and look through his book of reviews the first movie i ever looked up was spaceballs because i was like this is a great <laughs> film what did roger ebert give spaceballs he gave it two and a half stars and i'm like that seems unfair <laughs> but he uh he reviewed i remember reading he'd reviewed the hutsucker proxy and it's a kind of interesting ebert review because he writes it as a dialogue between an angel and a devil on either side of his shoulders and the angel was like this is the most technically accomplished movie this is an astonishing film and the angel is basically saying this is a four star movie and the devil's like this is narcissistic and vapid and shallow and about nothing and repetitive and he says at the end you know the angel said four stars and the devil said zero and he gives it two and it's like it you know and i and what I just remember about that review was that it was in the back of my mind when Fargo came out and Ebert acted like he thought it was the best film he'd ever seen. And I'm not belittling him for that view, nor am I belittling his take on Hudsucker. But because when I was young, I was already interested in film criticism and taste. I immediately thought it's interesting that these filmmakers can take Roger Ebert and make him feel simultaneously like they're worthless, flawed, and also ingenious. And then I saw The Big Lebowski, which much like showgirls like they're probably two of my favorite movies of the 90s i was too young to get them fully and i like what cam said about liking the movies more as i've gotten older and smarter but my reasons for truly loving them remained the same at 14 and 17 as they are now i loved showgirls when i was 14 because i thought it was hilariously funny and lebowski i thought i was going to die laughing when i was 17 and i've understood so much more about why it's actually funny what the cultural currents in it are and the political currents and the references in it but no i i when i mean you know i'm 37 now i was 17 when i saw it in the theater with my friends and just that sensation of laughing so hard i felt i was like outside my body I'm like you know these are these are my guys 
and then I've you know kept up with the films and each time a new one comes out there's I feel a lot of pressure watching it because I really want to care about it and it hasn't happened every time but I think it happens more and more deeply with them than with most English language American filmmakers for me but I guess having written a book about that that's kind of self-evident that I that I care about them. Um, and in terms of my experience with them, it's uh, it goes way back, actually, because Raising Arizona was a, a film that was basically on repeat in my house growing up. It was on pay-per-view. Do people remember pay-per-view or listening to this? Um, and we recorded it off of that onto a VHS tape, and we stuck the little piece of tape on the side, and I remember what it looked like, and I remember the A looked kind of weird in Arizona. And my brother and I watched it over and over and over again. It was quoted in the house. My brother would just walk around saying, you ate sand? Like, there were just lines from that film. Like, my, my parents as well. I mean, I remember the first time we actually watched it. They brought it home, VHS, and we watched And Holly Hunter's character was off-quoted in my house and it just was this it's funny when you're young you don't know what pastiche is you don't know what uh, you don't know when something's exaggerated you just watch something for the pure sheer joy or entertainment value of it and Raising Arizona wasn't particularly crazy it was just a great entertaining movie that we love to watch as a family <laughs> and it was only after that as I started to understand what a director was, what an auteur was, as I was getting a little bit older that I realized, I, I remember um, Miller's Crossing came out and my brother really, really liked that movie. And then it, we put two and two together that these were the same filmmakers. And so my brother and I started talking about the Coen brothers as this filmmaking entity. And, and then I remember Barton Fink came out and then I said, Jonathan, you have to watch Barton Fink. And when he refused to watch Barton Fink, because I thought we had this Cohen connection as brothers <laughs> about the Cohen brothers, when he refused to watch it, that bond was severed. <laughs> it was cute for a while. Um, and I don't think he's seen Barton Fink to this day. There's a limit. There are the, there are the types of films, and I, I use my brother as sort of like an example of a, maybe a, poor, a more mainstream viewer. There are certain f types of films, comedies perhaps, that he gravitates towards and then the other kind of Cohen film he doesn't really have time for so he's never seen Barton Fink or The Man Who Wasn't There or A Serious Man and to this day we still have the same kind of relationship where I'm like but you have to see A Serious Man it's amazing I thought you liked the Cohen brothers he's like no I just want to watch The Big Lebowski for you know 20, 20 more times and I love that too of course but um, so there so there is that kind of like divide on the kinds of films they make but the Coens have been very important to me for very long and I should say lest this sounds like a complete love fest and it seems like it is like we didn't get like the you know the fifth person in here to trash the cohen's <laughs> we're all obviously cohen fans however i can't say that i like all those films equally and there are a handful of, of their films that i um that i really can't stand and in fact there was that moment in the aughts between intolerable cruelty and the lady killers where i thought they might be done People were ready to write them off, I think, before No Country for well, Old if Men. I, can, I, mean, I mean, one point I would just make about that, <clears throat> and I think it's an interesting one, is Fargo and No Country serve this interesting function in the shape of their career as palate cleansers, and they also call back to Blood Simple. I mean, No Country calls back to Blood Simple in a way that's so overt, I'm amazed more people don't notice it, which is the way they take McCarthy's voiceover and use the same visual pattern from the beginning of Blood Simple. It's the same shots of West Texas with someone talking over them. The movie's openings are exactly the same. So they're honoring Cormac McCarthy while paying homage to their own beginning. But like Blood Simple, Fargo, and No Country are the three least referential movies they've made in their way. They're the three most stripped down. 
in some ways, Fargo and No Country are their two most successful movies in terms of Oscars and acclaim, and I think penetrating the consciousness. And it's very telling that they seem to get really caught up in their heads and they make movies like Barton Fink and Hudsucker Proxy and then Fargo strips down, or they make movies like Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers, which are perceived as impersonal or lesser. I don't love Intolerable Cruelty. I like the Lady Killers a lot. And then No Country kind of brings them back. So in a way, you'd think they're due for a bit of a decline again, except since No Country, that didn't happen. And there are greater or lesser films, but they've had box office success since then. And they haven't really, with the exception of Hail Caesar, a movie that, like Eliza, I like, they haven't really made something that people have seen as a dud. They had way more duds right leading up to Fargo and right leading up to to no country. And when you've had a career as long as they have with the basic consistency of getting distributed, released, <laughs> reviewed, and never really f- not being able to make movies, that's kind of amazing over 30 years. I have a hard time thinking at the level that they work at of anyone that can compete with that since the 80s. Because they're not Spielberg, but they're pretty entrenched with the resources that they have and the actors that they work with and the fact that they've never been on the ropes. Kind of fascinating. Okay, well, I think this is a good moment to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to each talk about the Cullen Brothers movie that speaks to us for some special reason. NAB Show New York is where go-getters in media, entertainment, finance, and advertising connect and champion new content strategies. 300-plus startup innovators and industry-respected leaders are gearing up to answer your questions as you demo their latest products and solutions. 50-plus sessions taking place on the show floor will get you up to speed on new business models, trending technology, and the latest creative inspirations. All complemented by several community-focused events set to expand your network and connect you with influencers shaping careers, creativity, and culture. Learn more at nabshow.com ny.com and get your free core package. Welcome back to our special film comment Cohen Brothers podcast. And now is the time when each of us talks about one particular Cohen Brothers film that we have rewatched for this episode and that we I don't know is either underappreciated or is a particular favorite of ours and we're going to start with Cam. Wow, pressure's on. Um so I picked uh, Hudsucker Proxy in part because I only saw it for the first time this year. I think there, there, uh, this year I watched, I was just re- unrelated to their upcoming stuff. I, I just was filling in some Cohen gaps and I saw this, Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty um, for the first time. And of those three, I think that this is the best. Although like Adam, I have some affection for Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty. We'll just let that one be. Um, but Hudsucker, I, I chose for this in part because I'm interested in the conflicted history of its reception. I, 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 I kind of love Ebert's review. I really disagree with it um, because I think that something that I've always found in the Coen's work and that's really strong for me in this film is that I never think of them as merely technically accomplished. There's always, to me, I mean, except for intolerable cruelty, to be honest, there's always uh, this soul, this soulfulness. And I, I mean, I, I'm at a point where I keep asking myself the question because some people that I respect really seem to seriously believe that they are kind of cruel. I, so I keep asking myself that as I watch something of theirs that I've not seen before. And Hudsucker, I think, 
Adam and I this weekend we we had a screening of the man who wasn't there at Metrograph, and this is a question I asked. Just you know, why do we seem to? Why do people seem to sometimes think the Collins are cruel? And what are we missing when we kind of easily ascribe that that descriptor? And like man who wasn't there, I think Hatsuko Proxy sort of perfectly encapsulates the they are cruel argument while also very very deeply undermining that argument. I I have to say I. I find everything that's strange about this movie really moving. I find it deeply moving that they collapse multiple decades of classic Hollywood comedy into one movie. I don't know why I find that moving. I just, um, it's, it's, I don't have another word for it. It's moving for me. I think this is a film that made me realize and made me re-realize recently that they are students of comedy and the history of comedy in ways that so many directors that we call comic directors at this moment just aren't that they are so interested in that history that Jennifer Jason Lee's performance in the context of character actors who are more on than she is, hers is hers is more artificial in a way, but in a way that perfectly serves the role. But even just the going for it of her performance, the writing of that performance, that great scene of her filing a story as she's on the phone, as she's kind of having a conversation, as she's helping someone else in the background finish a crossword, um, you know, the Rosalind Russell kind of thing, but with the Catherine Hepburn voice. This is something that Adam writes about really beautifully in his book. Uh, things like that. Just when has Jennifer Jason Lee gotten to, especially in recent memory, besides getting beaten up in a Quentin Tarantino movie, really gotten to sort of flex with a classical style in that way? But things like that just really overwhelm me. And I, I everything about this movie that's cheesy, I have to admit, I really love. I love Bill Cobb's narration. I love the the circle. I love Tim Robbins. I think his face is perfect for this movie. Um, I think Paul Newman is perfect. And I, I guess I this is a case where you just sort of read the history of the reception and it's a little, I don't quite understand how so many people don't <laughs> get what's amazing about this film in which, yes, you have the kind of the, I guess the, what goes around comes around. This is the way the cosmos works. What goes up comes down, et cetera, sort of Cohen thing. But within that, you have such sincere questions about fraudulence, um, among other things, that I don't know. I think it's a very, in a way, insecure movie. And I think that's really moving. And I just think it's, I think it's hilarious. And I think it's beautiful. I, uh, I'm just throwing adjectives at the movie because I feel a need <laughs> to correct Ebert's review, to rewrite it. Because I, I just, I really don't understand. I avoided this film for so long because I thought it was bad and then I saw it. And I just thought it was so beautiful. I just also want to shout out to this movie because I think it's hysterical. I think there's there has to be some sort of like it, it taste barometer, I guess, when it comes to their movies where certain things work for you and certain things don't. I it's That's the way it is with comedy and their comedy is so precise and calculated and set, and a set designed, art directed, scored that either you're going to go with what they're doing or not. Like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, for example, I sit completely stone-faced through. I've never had such a bad experience in a comedy, I think. Um, but The Hudsucker Proxy, I watched it again the other night in preparation for this podcast and I'm on the couch laughing out loud i think jennifer jason lee's performance is absolutely extraordinary every single intimation every single sorry in every single intonation um that she makes just has me on the floor i think that it's 
and and like you're saying, like how often does she get the chance to do something like that? I remember her performance in Kansas City. Altman's film has a similar register of uh, artifice and like almost like extreme caricature, which I also liked. Um, and I heard Dorothy Parker too. Actually, Jennifer Jason Lee in the '90s is is something we should talk that, about that, at that, some right, point. That, that's where it's at. She's pretty extraordinary. Um, but I just I I love the film. I'd love to hear whether other people on the panel love this film. I mean, it's funny, Cam. Cam tweeted at me today that I was a Hudsucker hater. I outed you. Hater. And, you know, I mean, that's not quite true. I think in the chapter I sort of try and reckon with the fact that it's one of their only films that at least publicly is acknowledged as a kind of troubled production. And that also had to do with the fact that they had earned the sort of traction, not through huge box office success, but through this weird pre-Tarantino cred of like, these are smart, but they're weird and they're kind of deluxe and profitable. And, you know, Burton Fink had set a record winning three awards at Cannes. Like, they got scouted by Joel Silver. And they're, depending on who you believe, it was going to be Tom Cruise and Clint Eastwood. I mean, they're like, there's rumors that that was what the casting of the movie was going to be. So when I look at Hudsucker, you see an allegory of its own making about the idea of, like, moving up vertically and being integrated into this kind of system and integrated into this kind of corporation. And that's the part of it that feels sort of personal, except the Coens are not Norville Barnes because there's nothing rubbish about the Coens at all. You know, They use him instead as a vehicle for this idea that I think I, I find articulated better in Lebowski that sort of simple goodness is not only its own reward, but a kind of simple goodness and decency serves a higher function in a craven materialistic <laughs> society. But the circle motif in that movie, look, that circle proxy is ingenious. Like the level of variations on circles and circularity and looping it into the circular nature of fads and the circular rhythm of the Cacheturian music in the scene that Sam Raimi actually directed of the, the hoops being made, and the cycle of commerce, like the sight gag in that movie, we did a whole two page spread in the book of um, the secretary reading War and Peace outside the bullpen, which is on the one hand, the dialectic of America and Russia, because it's American idea men and these Russian novels. And, when, and in case you think I'm making that up after War and Peace, it's Anna Karenina. So it's two Russian novels. So that's intentional. But also the idea of art and commerce or high and low, like it's an ingenious movie. It's a movie made by brilliant people, but it's also to me really, really, really a contraption. And even with my endless patience for them, I find it exhausting. But only brilliant people can make that movie. You can't make that movie if you're not the smartest people. So No, and I, and I think, frankly, I think your chapter on this is really useful. And I have to say, and I said this on Twitter, that even knowing how you feel about the movie, I, I'm, I think you do a really good job of sort of Something I mean, something you come back to throughout the book, but that I think is really relevant here is sort of the sense of their aesthetic control. And I think this is a case where they are certainly overwhelmingly in control in some ways. But I do think that the sort of insecurity of Tim Robinson's character and the question of fraudulence um, at the core of this film is what allows me to go with the contraption. Because at the core of it is this Tim Robbins rube who's soft as putty. And who's kind of pulled into this system of capital that's just way beyond him. Um, and I, I, I see, I see how people get to a sort of a—they're making fun of the dumb guy. I just, 
I, I think I think I guess what's beautiful about this film to me is that it like the the love story is genuine, the comedy is genuine, and I also think that their just affection for Art Deco of, of all things, et cetera, is real. Um, it's a, it's a it's a it's a a lot. It's a lot. When you it's said, but when you said systems and when you said capital, I just started thinking of Hail Caesar, with the <laughs> studio system and also the fact that it's capital pictures. So I know Elise is going to talk about about that. It just made me think of Hail Caesar. I'm like, those two movies are. I mean, you can do the crosses in so many ways across their filmography, but like the contraption like nature of Hail Caesar too, just sort of immediately came to mind. Absolutely. This is a good transition. Then I was also thinking um, uh, when you were talking about how. Uh, Hellsucker Proxy potentially exhausts you as a contraption. I think Hell Caesar is a film that have exhausted many people. Um, it's a film that I enjoyed very much, but it's also a film I need to get my head around. So maybe Elisa can help me do that. Yeah, I'm going to keep this appreciation train for the Cohen's uh, very unique brand of uh, sincerity going. Hell Caesar is a film that um, belongs to a particular um, meta film genre that I have a great affection for. That is Hollywood films about Hollywood filmmaking. And um, the aforementioned Sullivan's Travels certainly falls into this category. Sunset Boulevard, of course, The Bad and the Beautiful, Singing in the Rain. All versions of A Star is Born, including the forthcoming. Um, and then later on, stuff like SOB. You know, um, they're movies that endeavor to show a new level of self-reflexivity and sophistication. In large part, um, they sprung up as a reaction to the rise of television in the 1950s. And they walked this uh, interesting tightrope um, between this alluring promise of um, peeling back layers of artifice to reveal this kind of promise of realism and um, often um, giving the appearance of being critical of the culture of superficiality and decadence around film culture and production. Um, and also at the same time, indulging in the full cinematic spectacle, right? So um, in these films, the backstage becomes the stage and there's sort of this weird mise on a beam, you know, pur purportedly demythologizing the studio system while sim simultaneously exploiting all of the medium specificities that's afforded to them by that system. So in case you guys walked out of this movie, <laughs> um, I'll just recapitulate the, the premise. It's 1951. And um, Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Brolin, is the head of a production and a fixer for Capital Picture Studio. Um, he reports to a fictionalized Joe skank uh, in New York City, um, who remains unseen throughout the film. He keeps the star's um, images pruned and pristine by whatever means necessary, um, so that he often resorts to lying, bribing, um, threatening, and a lot of the times he gets violent. Um, he kills scandals before they materialize in headlines, um, and he, but he also knows how to play up, uh, you know, gossip columnists by feeding them salacious, sometimes made up drama about the stars. Um, when the film begins, there's a big production that is currently underway on the lot. Um, it's a capital P prestige picture, and it's called Hail Caesar, A Tale of the Christ. Um, it's a biblical drama um, and a star vehicle for a bear Whitlock played by George Clooney. 
And problems arise for Eddie Mannix when Baird gets kidnapped by a horde of screenwriters led by a communist academic. So that's sort of what sets off the uh, main course of events. In the way that The Bad and the Beautiful had like clear IRL counterparts, like the Kirk Douglas characters based on uh, some combination of David O. Selznick and Val Luton, um, Hail Caesar is rife with references to the real players of Hollywood lore. Like Eddie Mannix was a real fixer for MGM Studios. Of course, Joe Skank was the actual boss of the MGM studio, um, the president of the Lowe's um, company. Um, George Clooney's character is a sort of Robert Taylor type. Alden Alden Ehrenreich um, is Hobie Doyle and is a sort of Kirby Grant like singing cowboy type. Then you have like Ralph Fiennes as Lawrence Lorenz, <laughs> this uh, posh European transplant um, directing films in L.A. Um, Scarlett Johansson is like definitely like a weird Esther Williams type starring in Busby Berkeley type water ballets. Tilda Swinton uh, plays two like twin sisters who are like gossip columnists that evoke, let's see, like Hedda Hopper, Hedda Hopper yeah. um, and Army Orchard. And- yeah. And then, of course, uh, Tate, uh, Channing Tatum is like Burt Gurney and he's sort of this like Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire type. Um, and then, of course, Francis McDormand, who always appears in these films, um, is a chain smoking uh, film editor. Um, there's the there was an IRL Eddie Mannix and he was a studio fix for for MGM and um, he um, worked actually for Joe's gang. He was first sent to MGM to help keep an eye on Louis B. Mayer for Joe's gang. But soon this ex-gangster slash bouncer slash book cooker for Lowe's um, ended up becoming um, Louis B. Mayer's like third in command in the studio. Uh, Like he helped bury scandals for Spencer Tracy and Clark Gable and um, when Carol Lombard died in a plane crash, he was like in the mountains, literally searching for her remains. So he kind of did everything. Um, he's also been mythologized uh, by other films. Uh, well, one other film called Hollywood Land, starring Ben Affleck by oh, Bob Hoskins, two thousand and six. I remember that movie. <laughs> he's also a minor character in a Gore Vidal novel called Myron. But what the Coens add to this legacy of meta filmmaking is this sort of deep examination of um, the systems of faith tied to Hollywood mythmaking. And Adam writes beautifully about, you know, the sort of re- reoccurrence of faith in, in the Coens films. Um, Brolin's Mannix is a devout Catholic um, and he begins and ends the film in the confession booth. Uh, Clooney's fictional character um, of the film within the film has to do repeated takes of this line that ends with, quote, a truth we could see if we had, but, and then he can't remember the last word, but it's faith. And there's this hilarious roundtable discussion that occurs about the provenance of Christ involving a Catholic priest, a Greek Orthodox uh, priest, Protestant minister and a rabbi when they're invited by Eddie Mannix to the studio to give uh, spiritual feedback to the screenplay of Hail Caesar. 
Of course, the subtext of the discussion partially revolves around whether faith is even tenable within the studio system, you know, whether true spirituality could emerge from this collectively churned out piece of artifice on such a scale. What the film also does is allow for this commingling of a collective and personal mythology, because if you think about it, the Coen brothers were born in the mid-1950s. Um, and the world of Hail Caesar is sort of the um, it belongs to this history of their parents' youth, you know, prior to when they were born, um, which is to say, like, it's the grounds from which the brothers sort of codified or formed examinations around habits and principles and faith. And it allows them to explore this invisible aspect of their background. You know, um, it's a background they can't know because they weren't there. Um, so via the fictionalization of this other archaeology, they kind of delve into their own personal archaeology. And, you know, there's also a suspension of disbel disbelief that's being explored here that's um, required to enjoy films of this nature. <laughs> uh, especially nowadays, I think one of the issues that people have, I don't think they would put it into so many words, is sort of, you know, sometimes you watch a classical Hollywood film, say an MGM musical with a contemporary audience, and one of the most annoying things that happens is sort of this divisive laughter in all the wrong spots. You know, people have a hard time with sincerity and, like, competent filmmaking, apparently, uh, these days. <laughs> that competent filmmaking. And, you know, oftentimes when people do talk about a, a rapturous film-going experience, they, they liken it to a religious experience. So all of that is sort of being worked through in this film in, I think, a very interesting way. And it also kind of questions, the, you know, what kind of belief is um, required of the people working within the studio system. They must have had to you know, really have a certain amount of faith that's sort of like a reservoir of faith that, you know, was required to continue working day to day as cogs in this machine to keep the illusions going for, for the greater public and also for each other. Like, where does entertainment and art end and where does faith and ideology begin? You know, all these ideas are, are sort of being worked through in very coded ways in the film. At one point, Eddie Mannix, um, contemplates his own faith because uh, he's offered another job. It's a job that would be more lucrative. Um, it would be more it'd be more time off. It would be more stable. And he walks onto an empty Hail Caesar set and it's a scene that's all backlit with huge crucifixes rising up from the ground. So it's a scene that is very dramatic and it quite literally juxtaposes um, art and faith. Right. Uh, Whitlock's character is um, shaken after being kidnapped but soon uh, he makes friends with these um, soon to be blacklisted writers and, you know, the, these so-called unfriendlies who eventually end up being uh, lambasted during the McCarthy era, which the film does not go into, which it gets criticized for not going into. But that's really not what it's about. And he comes back to the studio spouting all this baloney about dialectic materialism and labor and stuff. And, and you know, it's it's so vapid the way that he just regurgitates all these ideas. And, and they show through that that sometimes in Hollywood, the meeting of art and faith does, they sort of cancel each other out. Anyway, so I think what's really fascinating and moving about this and what is the sort of wonder and astonishment that the film shows of 
you know, the Coen brothers' love for films at this period. It does revel in the magic of filmmaking from this era, and it does ask its audiences to set aside, like, contemporary cynicisms and bask in that spectacle. You know, maybe that's why it makes people roll their eyes when I mention the title. (laughs) So... Yeah, you just get a you just get the feeling that they needed to get this out of their system. You know, on the whole, is it one of their best films? Probably not, you know, but you know, the Channing Tatum Sailor Dance number, like even people who hate the movie cannot hate that scene. <laughs> it is just the most fun thing to watch ever. So, you know, it's it's not a parody at all, you know, despite being a meta film. It's not a parody. There's no trace of cynicism or irony in in the film. It's just a super personal love letter to the films that had a part in setting the stage for their own personal mythology. On Hail Caesar, I mean, yeah, I, I, and it's, that's just a very like packed, dense summation of what's in it, and I agree. I mean, I find the question of who Eddie Mannix is thinking of going to work for so suggestive because the guy from Lockheed Martin, and he's the company that's going to manufacture ICBMs, talks to him about the future, and the communist screenwriters sign their ransom note, the future. And so he's contemplating the question of what his next job is going to be, but here you have the military-industrial complex, and you have these communist writers who ideally are on opposite sides of an ideological spectrum, except that you also have the Gene Kelly character played by Channing Tatum revealed to be not only secretly gay, but also a Russian <laughs> operative who, with a nuclear sub, <laughs> which creates the threat that the I, that the missile you know developers are trying to protect against, but it's also tied to the screenwriter's aims. I mean, I remember when the film came out, there was a lot of conservative commentary on it that quite liked it, you know, that suggested that they're satirizing George Clooney's brainlessness as a liberal and kind of showing the communist screenwriters to be somewhat self-interested and not just, you know, like, so anyone who's written about like history, like the movie like would probably make Jay Hoberman's head explode. Like I never saw what Hoberman, who's written brilliantly about that era in, in Hollywood, like what he would think of Hail Caesar. That scene with the sub is like something out of the Manchurian Candidate. I mean, or, or a version of the Manchurian Candidate. But you, you mentioned the, the you know, dialectic and that America-Russia dialectic was in the opening voiceover of Blood Simple, for God's sake. You know, in America, we got one way of doing things. And in Russia, there's another. It's a through line. So the Hail Caesar is exactly what you say it is in terms of a love letter to old Hollywood and an examination of those systems. It's also a movie that collapses so much of what the Coen's movies have always been about into this one package, the fact that they always move around genres. So here's a bunch of different genres of films. The Eddie Mannix character is very much a serious man. In A Serious Man, the faith is Jewish. In this film, it's Catholic. But, you know, the the questing and the wanting for God is the same. You know, I think it's incredibly dense. I also think it's a movie that some people find off-putting, whether it's off-putting because it's so earnest. I mean, some people find it off-putting because they think it gets film history wrong. God forbid you're not to the letter about film history, because people said, I mean, I remember reading, I don't want to misquote someone, I don't know if it was Dave Kerr or someone who's a brilliant old Hollywood historian was like, but Eddie Mannix was horrible and Eddie Mannix was a, an asshole and who could make Eddie Mannix a hero? And all I would say is, as if they're not aware of that. I mean, it's not a documentary. It's playing fast and loose with that. But it's definitely not a Hollywood Babylon thing where they're bad-mouthing Hollywood. In some ways, it's praise to the genius of the system. I just think it's laced with some doubt and some insecurity and some ambivalence about their place in it. You remember how the film ends with the pan up to the sky 
and then it says directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Yeah. And if you want to decide that that's a God complex or if you want to decide that it's the exact opposite of that, um, I think you, you're on solid ground either way. I mean, I remember when it came out that one of the complaints that I kept hearing was just in a practical sense that the, I mean, speaking of a through line, that this this film can feel like a series of detours. And I think that some people maybe get hung up on just not knowing why we're spending so much time watching Alton Ehrenreich not get a line right and not knowing why we're spending so much time watching an idiot George Clooney kind of meet with these communist writers. There is a sense of, particularly if you're coming from a, you know, the Coens have made extremely kind of fleet-footed, energizing, plot-heavy, but still extremely intelligent films. And I think that Hail Caesar sort of takes you aback if you're expecting kind of keep lurching forward because it doesn't do that in the same way. But that's what I, I mean, and I love your point about just kind of faith and illusion because that's what I love about this being about multiple not particularly intelligent actors. Not to say anything about actors, but, 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 well, well, but 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 more to to just say that I, I love that Alden Ehrenreich doesn't get the line right. I love that filmmaking is about putting it together, and I love that the film sort of shows him being humiliated by that in a way that it's that part of the artifice of filmmaking is in taking sort of ingredients of things or, or actors or performances that don't quite add up in the correct way and making something magical out of it. I think they have a lot of faith in that. Might have been. When, when Nick Pinkerton wrote about it, but he talked about the line being wrong part, you know, would that it were so simple, would that it were so simple, would that it were so simple. The genius of the system is that when you actually see the scene, he just says, it's complicated, which is that the system works. <laughs> you know, it eventually smooths that out until it makes the same point in fewer words. And the contrast between saying, would that it were so simple and it's complicated, there's nothing different between those two things. And there's everything different between those, between those two things in terms of filmmaking. In you know that 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 idea of process and end result, I just think it's ingeniously compressed, even in a throwaway joke like that. And that scene is so funny. So, I think that the ultimate filmmakers who are trafficking in things that are simple and complicated at the same time, which I will uh, touch upon a bit with my film. But first, Adam, let's go to you. What what film have you brought with you? Well, I chose Inside Lou and Davis, and. You know, this is like very social media speak, but like I can't even with this film. Just, <laughs> just, just, just in terms of how much, just in terms of how much it makes me feel. And actually, this is a very kind of like love any podcast, but also one of the things about filmmakers who have a long career is experiencing them with colleagues. So actually, a little way to frame my thought on the film actually has to do with Michael, which is that Michael saw the film before I did. And we were talking after I finally saw the movie about a sequence in the film which I'm assuming most people listen know that it's about a folk musician who kind of goes on this rambling road odyssey and you know ultimately ends up being, in a way, both literally and figuratively, he's the opening act for Bob Dylan. And the kind of punchline of the movie is that he's what comes before and no one will remember him as an individual or as a moment in folk music that Dylan's going to transform. But there's a moment in the film where he's driving back home after a failed audition at the Gate of Horn in Chicago. And because the Coens are so smart, the Gate of Horn is both a real place and a metaphor for the testing of heroes taken from the Odyssey, a movie, that, uh, a text that is as intrinsic to Lewin Davis as it is to a brother, where art thou? Right down to the fact that the cat is named Ulysses. But uh, that cat appears on the road Maybe, because he hits something, maybe, 
And it's this incredibly shadowed image, maybe, of this cat limping off. And the cat is a literal thing and a symbolic thing. And the cat is Lewin, but the cat might also be his pride or the cat might be the kid that he's not going to see because he's not going to drive into Akron. Anyway, my point is that I was texting with Michael. Michael's in New York. I'm in Toronto. And I said, oh, the cat in the, in the night. And Michael said, yeah, I think about that a lot. And I'd seen the film like two hours earlier, but for some reason I texted back, yeah, so do I. I'd only seen the film two hours ago, but it felt like an image that I'd been living with for a long time. And it's an image that I keep thinking of. I think a lot about their movies intellectually. I try and parse them. Writing the book, you come back to them. You're like, did I get that line of dialogue right? Or how does that cut actually work or, or whatever? I never find myself not thinking about aspects of Inside Lewin Davis. I never don't think about what it means for the Coens after 30 years of filmmaking together to make a movie about someone whose partner dies and who's suddenly forced to be a solo artist. I never stop thinking about the fact that when he's asked to play something from Inside Lewin Davis, he makes the absolute wrong choice by choosing an archaic 16th century song where there's no money but it's about a woman dying in childbirth and about sacrificing the woman so that the kid can live and thinking about the abortion that didn't happen and thinking about the abortion that he's about to pay for. I can't ever stop thinking about that because that's not reading too deeply into a movie. It's choices that they make that feel in the time you're watching the film effortless and natural and tied to the characters, but they're just so smart and I never stop thinking about what it means at the end that he's an interpreter who can't write. So at the beginning of the film, you may be sick of, you may not like him when he's singing, hang me, oh, hang me, because he's whining. I mean, why is he singing this old song about how miserable his life is? There's talent there, but there's a lot of pretense. By the end, he's earned this because we see how miserable his life is. He deserves to be a character in a folk ballad. He is. He's lost his girl. <laughs> he doesn't have his kid. He doesn't have a coat to wear. No one's going to let him sing. No one's going to give him money. He's sleeping on couches. I mean, the movie is a folk ballad. It's the Ballad of Lewin Davis. But he can't write. He is trapped inside this loop of folk music. He's trapped inside a tradition that's never new, never gets old, which is how he frames it. It's a folk song. But Dylan, coincidentally a Jew from Minnesota like the Coens, totally coincidentally, but also true, uh, can invent. And so even though almost every song on that film's soundtrack has farewell or goodbye in the lyrics, many of them in the title, but at least somewhere in the lyrics, in the last line of the film, au revoir, another way of saying farewell, you know, Lewin's kick saying, thinks he's saying goodbye to uh, a guy who he's just had the shit kicked out of him by, you know, saying, get out of my town, this is my town. But what's really happening is history is saying goodbye to him. He does not last. He does not endure. Dylan finds a way out because he invents a new kind of folk music as well as drawing on the old. I find the idea of like a movie about an opening act for Bob Dylan deeply moving because the Coens are really successful and I don't think they're condescending to Lewin Davis. I think they see themselves in him and the risk that it takes to make art and even just the fact that the movie doesn't seem certain about whether he's good or not. He's fine. I love what Bud Grossman says to him. He says, you're not green. You could work in an ensemble. Every time in that movie, he has an opportunity to succeed. He undermines it because he wants to do it on his own terms. But he's also undermining what he claims to be all he wants to do, which is use it to pay his rent. 
that song he sings, the dumb space song that everyone laughs at because it's funny and it is funny. It's a good song and he's great on it, but he doesn't want to get paid. He wants to be paid as an independent contractor, not as a session musician. So, I mean, he loses the royalties. <laughs> the guy says, I'll put you in a folk group. Uh, he's basically Bud Grossman saying you can be in Peter, Paul and Mary. I mean, that's what's being alluded to. He doesn't want to do it. He wants to do it on his own terms. Even when he says you need to get back together with your partner, that's one of the reasons he doesn't want to collaborate with anyone else because this guy Mikey is is dead. I think the Coens in Barton Fink maybe, which I think is very close to Lewin Davis, really belittle Barton and his delusions of grandeur and he's not as good as he thinks he is. I think in Lewin Davis, they're closer to maybe allowing that he is. But the question of whether you're good at something or whether you make a living at something, the answer to those two things is not always necessarily the same. I just think it's really, really a deeply soulful movie. And I can't think of another Cohen film, maybe you guys can offer your own ideas, that takes its cues as much from a lead performance. Maybe Gabriel Byrne in Miller's Crossing, maybe Lebowski with Bridges. I just think Oscar Isaac is extraordinary. Whatever choices he's made since then and whatever kind of star and actor he's become since then, that's a discovery of talent. No one had used him like that before. I don't think anyone will use him like that again. That is a guy carrying a movie. Not that the movie would fall apart without him, but that mix of soulfulness and hatefulness that that film has, my God, is he well-directed and my God, is he good in that film. Right, and and it's 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 a it's his naturalism surprisingly that surprisingly. drives the performance, but that drives the film because um, you could say that yes, there are many Coen Brothers films in which the main actor um, it fuels it, like Billy Bob Thornton and the man who yep. wasn't there, or John Turturro and Barton Fink, but those are highly stylized performances that don't really exist as seemingly real people outside of the framework of the film. They're they're one. And they're, they're one with the aesthetics of the film. Whereas the, the, Lewin Davis is the rare film where he seems to kind of like break free. You actually, it's the rare Coen Brothers film, not to criticize others, but the rare Coen Brothers film where you desire what the protagonist desires. And I think that that is, and the film that I'm about to talk about is, is, is probably the opposite <laughs> um, but at this, it doesn't make it any less terrifying, no. but it might maybe makes it less, um, you know. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, I don't, you're, I know you're, I know what one you're about to talk about. I won't spoil it. I'll let you say it, but like, yeah, that idea of desiring what the character desires. And yet at the same time in Lewin Davis, the movie has these moments that isolates him and it's like, he can't acknowledge what he wants. Like that scene where he goes to see Carrie Mulligan as Gene and, and Justin Timberlake as Jim Singh and they're, the, and they're singing with the military guy, the, um, uh, what's his name? That's the, 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 like the singing soldier character. I'm just tired, so I'm not remembering his name. They're bathed in like beatific light and the audience is singing along with them. And it's that idea of connecting with people. And he can never admit that that's what he wants. But up on stage, it's kind of all he wants. He does everything he can to resist it and reject it and project this kind of ornery, impassioned artist solo on my own image. The way he watches that audience sing along with them, it's kind of contempt, but it's a desire for it. And it just breaks my heart when I watch it. Um, well, the film that I'm going to talk about is... Like Lewin Davis, I would say, is a film, and Barton Fink, is a film whose 
kind of like voluptuous existentialism <laughs> gets to me every single time. I think that there's, when they're at their best, the Coen brothers do this thing where the camera and the cutting can invest so many um, like objects and performances and faces and angles with almost this like totemic quality that, that makes you sit up and pay attention to every single solitary thing. And the great irony of everything kind of being placed there for a reason is that they'll always then pull the curtain back and say, nothing has a reason. <laughs> and that's actually sort of a terrifying thing. And uh, watching A Serious Man again, which I liked very much the first time, but it like they're great films, it gets better and better the more you watch it. Watching it again, I realized that there are a few films that kind of shake the core of my faith because I am not somebody who necessarily has faith. The only other film I could think about that does this to me is uh, Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, which is a film that's so much about religious skepticism, but at, at, and, and but in the final moment um, has this sort of like universal profound terror that kind of gets, it, it kind of reaches in and kind of grabs me and, and leaves me feeling scared and bereft. And A Serious Man, though obviously a funnier film than The Last Temptation of Christ, sort of does the same thing for me. So um, just, you know, very briefly, it's it's the, again, the one that people think is potentially the most autobiographical because it's actually set in Minnesota in a Jewish community, and it's set in the um, early 70s, I believe. Late 60s. Late 60s, right, 1967, yeah. isn't it? Um, and you can pick that up with just giving, like references to like, F Santana. F Troop and, and Santana. And I love the references to the Columbia Record Club because I, I was a member of that growing up. And it was always very stressful having to send that card back saying, I do not want to pay for this record this month, which is one of the ongoing jokes in the film. So Larry Gopnik. Larry Gopnik. Played by the great Michael Stuhlbar. The great because of this film. Um, is this sort of, um, I guess, Shlemiel is the best word to yeah. describe him. He's a math professor. Not yet tenured. Definitely not yet crucial, tenured. Crucial context. Crucially, um, who is basically a, a, a Job figure. He, he is, everything is just falling down around him. You can't think of things going possibly worse. The, the horrors sort of pile up um, piece by piece until you would think it actually would be so excessive that it would be impossible to watch, but the Con brothers just, they do something that keep you watching. They make it possible that at any given moment he could crawl out of it at the same time, you know, that he won't. Um, and it does tease that it teases it. I wouldn't say redemption, but it teases resolution. And then it constantly kind of rejects that. Um, but there's, you know, it, this is it's very much about somebody who's searching for answers. He 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 kind of goes up the chain of the rabbis in the local town. You know, there's the, this says on the screen the you know first rabbi, second rabbi, and then there's Marshak, right? There's the the top one that he can't even get into because the rabbi is so busy. And basically, he is unable to find answers to any of his questions. Are these things happening to him because there's some universal or? Um, reason is there a reason for anything and to go into all the details of how this takes place would be both to kind of ruin it for those who haven't seen it and also to kind of get myself into a crazy knot so i probably won't but it's a film that's just full of paradoxes every time you think you understand something the film says well maybe that wasn't the thing you actually earlier adam we're talking about the maybes 
And maybe this happened, but maybe it didn't. And Serious Man is constantly showing you things and saying, maybe this is because God made it this way, but maybe this is just a coincidence. And it refuses to give you any answers. And this keeps happening to the extent that it just becomes absolutely terrifying. And I will not give away the last shot for those who haven't seen it, but it's probably the most powerful last shot in the Cohen's filmography and the most ambiguous, I would say. Can I just say that A Serious Man and Hail Caesar actually are films that make me wish that more professors in college would teach courses on religion and the arts, just specifically like using texts like like A Serious Man or Hail Caesar to help people sort of get a back a footing in mm. kind of Jewish philosophy, Catholic philosophy. Because what's interesting to me about these films is that for such mainstream name brand filmmakers, they are so willing to challenge people with deeply rigorous philosophical, religious philosophical thought in a way that I just, who else is, I mean, besides like Scorsese and like Last Temptation, and, and even then, I don't know that I'm as at sea when I watch that as I am with A Serious Man, which is a film that I find um, deeply exciting for someone who also does not totally understand totally understand it this is weird only the coens do this to me besides i don't know well i mean i had my my moment of wondering what the hell passion of the christ was about but that actually <laughs> didn't take me very long to figure out frankly um but but the jews did it <laughs> i mean i mean that was that yeah that became very that became very clear but 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 with something with something like a serious man i what what i marvel at is just i think it's such a a risk to make a film like this that's supposed to be understood by someone like like me, I, I watch it and I wonder, what do the Coens think that I'm going to get out of this? Because I, I don't know anything about this. And yet I'm so wrapped the entire time. And, and synapses are firing and, and the drama and the action is doing a lot to help me understand. But there's always a sense with them that I, I just didn't grow up knowing anything about these things. Th and it's difficult. I think that they're just asking questions that they've been asking since they were kids. And I think that they ask them in such honest, direct ways that the hope is that the audience will ask the same questions, right? It's a film that begins with this old world Jewish fable um, about, uh, with Five Finkel playing this possible Dybbuk, as you, and as you write in, in your chapter on the film, there's a question mark after his name well, in the credits. Is he a Dybbuk or is he not a Dybbuk? Yeah. And, and what happens Dybbuk? in this completely disconnected opening scene, this is a pre-credit sequence that has absolutely nothing to do literally with the rest of the film. But then the film also has these nested, disconnected pieces, like the, the story of the, the, the Goy's teeth, right? Um, in, in which there's a, the rabbi tells a story about a dentist who found these um, uh, <laughs> Hebraic letters in the in the teeth in the teeth of a crying out to God, yeah. And there's no solution. The, the, the joke of it is that he's like, well, what ha you know, what happened? And he's like, nothing happened. What, you're asking the wrong questions, right? Because the film is a constant series of puzzles that have no solution, and that's a really disturbing thing. That's a disturbing thing for such a fun movie to be about. Well, yeah, and and when you mentioned the Dybbuk, I mean. The fact that on the end credits, even the end credits have no resolution about whether he's an innocent who's been murdered, which is one kind of terror, or a supernatural figure who is going to place a curse. And I mean, I know what you mean by it doesn't tie into the rest of the movie, but of course, and I think you're intimating this, like it also completely defines the rest of the movie. One of the things in that movie is the structuring ellipsis of moving from the shtetl to America in the 60s and everything that's happened to the Jews in between that that started the 20th century and the mid 
20th century and the question of rootlessness and home and the fact that the Jewish community you see in the movie, this kind of suburban subculture is like the shtetl you know, refigured or the shtetl kind of moved over. Because one of the things you see is that they're also deep within the community because they haven't quite assimilated or assimilation is one of the looming terrors. And I think that, you know, one movie we haven't talked about, which is a great popular hit for them, which is No Country for Old Men, it has that line that got quoted a lot and that some critics thought sums the movie up too neatly, which is that idea of can't stop what's coming. And I see that in A Serious Man too, not just in that last shot, which we won't spoil, but which absolutely visualizes, can't stop what's coming, even if the question of what that is is highly indeterminate, whether it's a naturally occurring thing or a supernaturally occurring thing or a metaphor for sort of the future. But I think that that, that idea of you know, kind of Jewish consciousness of like, history is happening to us. <laughs> You know, and that idea of feeling buffeted about by and abused by history in the 20th century for a movie that's about Jewishness and, 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 and sort of clinging to that Jewishness is, is very moving to me. And again, really cycles away from simply the idea of cruelty. Because I have friends who really believe that that movie is just like a torture test for a Jewish stereotype. And that it's in that category of like Woody Allen, Jewish self-loathing, leaving aside the fact that self-loathing is one of the things that we do best and, you know, we're going to own it. Um, I just see so much feeling in there. And I would also say to your point about the questions they've been asking since they're kids, they're the kid in the movie. They're not the dad. Right. Yeah. We should say that the film is also structured kind of around the bar mitzvah. The, the, the bar mitzvah and becoming a man. But they're Danny. I mean, they're that boy. And then again, not to spoil the last shot, but to keep alluding at it, both for the people who are listening and know exactly what we're talking about. And for the people who haven't seen it, who now want to see it for that final shot. When you think of the Coens as Danny and you think of that last shot, it's very moving. And the opposite of impersonal could not be more personal, I, I think. This looks for me extremely clarifying. I think, I think it was not until the last shot that I really understood the underpinnings of the film, the yeah. terror um, of I, I, the I, ideas. I gasped. I remember myself gasping at the Toronto Festival screening of that, pre-screening of that last shot, the out of nowhereness of it, the absolute terror of it. It's on the short list of the scariest endings to any film I've ever seen. And I think we should leave it there. I think we need to kind of leave it hanging like that because the Coen brothers always leave us hanging and <laughs> wanting more. And look out for The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is coming out um, from Netflix, though also will have a small theatrical release. I hope it'll be more than small, but it is planned for theatrical. And thank you very much, all of you, for being here. Get Adam's book, which is out from Abrams. And we'll be talking about the Coen brothers for many years to come. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.